Hey there, Daily Journal Podcast. Listeners, this is Brian Cardell, host of your usual Friday podcast, the Weekly Appellate Report. Our show was off last week while we're working on a special episode you'll find in its proper spot this coming Friday, but I'm just here for a moment for handing it over to our Orange County reporter, Megan Cuniff, for something of a career retrospective podcast about Richard Marmoreau, a longtime partner with Skadden Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom, who headed the firm's SEC enforcement and white-collar defense practice, and who just retired at the end of last year at the culmination of a marathon insider trading case he successfully defended on behalf of Orange County ophthalmologist James Mazo. Megan and Richard will get deeply into the details of that case, but by way of a quick preface, it arose in 2008 when the SEC accused Matsu, who was formerly the chairman and CEO of Advanced Medical Optics, of tipping off former Angels third baseman Doug DeCensis of a potential upcoming acquisition of Mazo's company. Late last year, criminal charges against Mazo were dismissed in federal court in Santa Ana after Mazo and the government agreed to a civil settlement requiring Mazo to pay a $1.5 million fee and agree not to serve as a director or chief executive for a publicly trading company for five years. In addition to chatting about the ins and outs of that particular case, Richard provides some general tips for practitioners in the security space and generally. And if you're interested in more, look for a profile Megan wrote about Richard that's up on our dailyjournal.com site now. Without any further preamble, then let me turn it over to Megan Kuna. This is Megan Cuniff with the Daily Journal, and I'm here with Richard Marmoreau, a retiring partner at Skadden Arps. We're going to talk about his career, including the insider trading case that he just got finished with. Can you, can you take us through your thought pattern and plan of action when Judge Carter requested the supplemental briefing regarding uh, James Mazo's settlement with the Security Exchange Commission? So to talk about what I thought at the time of Judge Carter's request, you really have to go back 10 years to when the investigation first started. This case was always a dual investigation, the SEC and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And as it progressed, we knew ultimately that there was a possibility that Jim Mazo could be charged by the SEC, which he was in 2012, and then by the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2016. We also knew that the U.S. Attorney's Office charges were by far the more serious in that they carried with them the potential of loss of liberty. Uh, this is not to minimize the SEC charges one bit, but we all understood that the SEC was a civil case and would follow along the criminal case. So we spent our, uh, the lion's share of our efforts um, focusing on the criminal case. When we ended up getting the uh, agreement to have a dismissal in the criminal case after the second hung jury where 10 out of 12 voted to acquit, we had to then focus on the SEC case and try to resolve that. I always knew that that would be a pretty straightforward resolution, and in fact it was. So that takes us to the, to the time when we received Judge Carter's order. We had hoped that Judge Carter would simply sign the papers that were submitted, but Judge Carter, to his credit, being meticulous as he always is, saw things in it which he wanted to have a hearing about. So my initial thought process when we received that order from Judge Carter was, let's just get this thing done. Whatever Judge Carter needs to do, let's satisfy the judge and let the, let's get this settlement finalized and end this 10-year nightmare, nightmare for Jim Mazo. And so that's what I thought. So the first trial was, was two months long, and you had two co-defendants who, just by the 
facts of the case as they played out over the, the second trial for sure. You couldn't have been in lockstep with you. Had you had this before? I had never had a case involving multiple defendants. I've always been fortunate enough to only have one defendant, my client, in court, so we wouldn't have to worry about possibly uh, disparate defense strategies. This was really my first multi-defendant case that went to trial. So how do you manage those situations, including communication with co-defendants counsel, and, and what do you do to keep your case fresh when you're not calling witnesses? Well, in terms of managing, it's a, it's a lot more difficult than meets the eye. It, it involves managing it pre-trial and managing it during trial. Generally speaking, without speaking directly about this case, defense lawyers enter into joint defense arrangements with co-defendants so that there can be open dialogue among the counsel. And so that is, that is typical. Uh, but invariably, you must expect that your defense strategy is going to uh, coincide to some extent and uh, be different to some extent uh, from the other defendants. What our team focused on throughout the pretrial and the trial phase of the what I'll call Mazo 1, the multi-defendant case, was to stay in our own lane. We had a defense. We had a defense theory of the case. Jim Mazo did not tip Doug DeSensei. Jim Mazo made no profit from the DeSensei and related trades. And that circumstantial evidence that the government was presenting against Jim Mazo was totally explainable and, and had innocent explanations, which in fact we proved at trial. That was our lane. And we resisted the temptation to fight the other battle, which was really Doug DeSensei's battle, explaining the innocent reasons for his trades. That was his job, his job and his lawyer's job, and we stayed away from that. So for you, what was the key moment in the first trial? To me, the key moment was when the judge announced that the jury had no verdict with regard to Mr. Mazo. Because from my perspective as a defense lawyer, there were three possible results in any criminal trial. There's two good ones. There were two good ones. One is an absolute acquittal, and the other is a hung jury. In each of those, your client leaves a free man. And since we had obtained one of those two, a hung jury, we were very happy, particularly because the other two defendants were not as fortunate. So that made it very, very clear that we had something to celebrate about. And what were the key moments in the trial that you think got you to that verdict? I think that the testimony of Jim Mazo was probably the seminal moment in our first trial, in that unlike the other two defendants who for good and solid reasons did not choose to testify, Jim Mazo did choose to testify and was on the stand for the better part of three days, including some effective and grueling cross-examination by a very skilled prosecutor. And I thought he survived that very well. And I thought the jury had a good sense of Jim Mazo as a person, what he had accomplished, his character for integrity. And I think that went a long way in creating the deadlock that resulted in the hung jury. Now, an early success in that trial was the cross of the FBI agent. Can you talk about how that went and, and what the point of that was for your case? Yes. The FBI agent, Agent Howard, was not the case agent in the case, which is, not typ which is typical of uh, uh, government strategy where they'll have what's called a clean agent who knows basically nothing about the case, prepare himself to testify, and then testify. So his testimony was 
basically designed to demonstrate that there was circumstantial evidence that Jim Mazo had tipped Dr. Sensei. What we did, what our team did, and we, you know, we started obviously several months before the trial preparing the cross-examination, what our team did was to take on each of the alleged so-called circumstantial evidence pieces from the indictment. There were 10 of them. And we established that each one did not rise to the level of being any evidence whatsoever against Jim Mazo. For example, the government alleged that there were certain telephone calls between the Mazo house and the Desensei house. We got the FBI agent to admit first that that is no evidence of who spoke on the calls. It could have been the wives, it could have been others at the house. Secondly, through an examination of calendars and other records, we got him to acknowledge that either Jim Mazo or Doug Desensei could not have been on many of those calls. One may have been out of town, might have been um, at the office when the home-to-home calls were made, etc. That led to a very strong inference that the government's circumstantial case was actually rather weak and that actually what they said were meetings and discussions between Jim and Doug were nothing of the sort. So how did you and your team debrief during this trial? This trial was, was like many of my other cases in that we had a rather large team of associates and partners and paralegals. And we would meet every day after court at the hotel that we were staying, and we would review what had happened that day, and we'd talk about what to expect the next day. On Fridays, we'd review the whole week, and we'd talk about what to expect for the next week. And then after a half hour, an hour of these discussions, we'd all go our separate ways preparing our different pieces of the case. Uh, what about after the first trial? What was the planning session like for the, for the second trial? Well, once we found out that the government intended to retry Jim Mazo, obviously we were, we were disappointed. We had hoped that the government would take its victory against Doug DeSensei and Mr. Parker and end and the case. That wasn't to be. So our planning was basically for the worst-case scenario of Doug DeSensei flipping and testifying against our client, in our view, uh, untruthfully, that he had been tipped by our client. So our focus was basically on Doug DeSensei during the, the uh, interim period between tri- uh, trial number one and trial number two. And what exactly were you having people do on that? Did you have associates working on preparation for that? What was the process? We had a, a pretty large team, and so we assigned a couple of our best young associates, uh, Jeff Steinfeld and Matt Tako, to take the laboring ore in doing the first draft of the Desense cross-examination. And that process then was joined by the rest of the team in terms of commenting on where we were going to go and developing a strategy. It was clear that our main goal was obviously to portray Doug Desense as lying in order to get his deal with the government. That was the essential theme of the defense. So we had to analyze the deal that Doug Desense had obtained, analyze his new statements, and compare them to other statements he had made over the previous eight years when he had denied receiving inside information from Jim Mazo, and he proclaimed his innocence. So we had a, we had a, a theme, which was for eight and a half to nine years, Doug DeSensei 
portrayed himself to anyone who would listen, including to the court, as being not guilty of insider trading. And that the only reason he was now making up a story and saying he was and that Jim Mazo tipped him was to get a benefit, turned out to be a substantial benefit, from the government. So that became our central theme of the, uh, of the trial. Now, was a lot of that information about the timing of the trades and the tipping, was that new to the second trial? Now, all of the information on the timing of the trades was based on the records. What was new was Doug DeSensei's narrative of putting alleged conversations with Mr. Mazo before certain trades in order to allege that Mr. Mazo's comments, his alleged comments, uh, caused Doug DeSensei to trade. So can you walk us through the cross-examination of DeSensei? You, you said you had a narrative plan. How did you assess how that was going, and how did, how did you uh, adjust as things went along? Well, the cross-examination of DeSensei was prepared well before the trial began, and it was the natural corollary to what I had said in the opening statement. In other words, in the opening statement, I had introduced this as a case about a man, Doug DeSensei, who was lying to save his own skin. That was presented to the jury in opening statement. And I presented the reason why we believed he was not telling the truth, being the incentive of a cooperation deal with the government. So when it came to, came to cross-examination, it was really taking what we had said to the jury in opening statement and then putting it to dissense in the form of question. We knew, for example, that the sensei would have to admit that for the prior eight years he had denied insider trading and that he had told people that he traded for legitimate reasons. We knew he had to admit that. We also knew he had to admit that the time, that the day that he changed his story was the day he decided to get a deal with the government. So it was directly tied not to any altruism, not to any uh, moral pangs of any sort, but rather to his ability to get a deal with the government. And third, we knew that the deal he got from the government was a very substantial benefit. So our cross-examination was basically to try to present those key themes uh, about the prior inconsistent statements, statements that he was actually innocent, with his new testimony, and to present it in a chronological way. We also had a theme in the DeSensei cross-examination of actually why he traded. And we believed that he would give us the information that he did, which is he relied substantially on Dick Pickup, who was a, who was a very noted and uh, famous investor in Orange County and a very good friend of Doug DeSensei's. And so we also hoped to establish that in addition to relying on Dick Pickup, that he would admit that he read Jim Mazo's behavior and that he observed that Jim Mazo was busy towards the end of 2008, early 2009, so something good must be happening with his company. And in fact, somewhat to our surprise, he actually admitted that. So the two main affirmative parts of our defense, that is, the reason why he traded, number one, and his re uh, being Dick Pickup and his reading of Jim Mazo's behavior, he actually agreed with me and testified that those two things were an important part 
of his trading, what led to his trading in AMO stock. And I, and I think you described it as, as kind of like the scene from A Few Good Men when they're planning, and he says, you know, I, he, he wants to tell me, I, he, he wants to tell me I just need to leave him there. Right. Is it like that with, with Dick Pickup in the, in the reading gym speech? It, it, it really was. I believed from the first moment I got involved in the case that Doug DeSensei had traded for innocent reasons, that he had traded because of Dick Pickup and because of reading Jim Mazo's behavior. And I further believed that even though he had entered into a cooperation deal with the government, that he wanted to say those things, that he wanted to explain how important Dick Pickup was to his trading and how important the observations he made of Jim Mazo's behavior, not the conversations, but the observations of his behavior were to his later trades. And fortunately, he did admit both of those things. Now, Dick Pickup was definitely talked about in the first trial a lot, but the reading Jim's behavior was really not present until the second trial. Right. How, how important do you think that was in the second trial to, to letting jurors know what you think really happened? I think it was incredibly important because the Dick Pickup, the reliance on Dick Pickup, took us through most of the trades, but the government had a couple of late trades in early January where Dick Pickup had actually stopped buying, and we needed to explain those trades specifically, and that's where the reading behavior came in. We didn't bring that up in the first trial, in large part because Doug DeSensei didn't take the stand in the first trial, so it would have been very difficult to make that argument in the first trial. Um, and so we, it, it was not a, a piece of that trial, but it became a centerpiece to the second trial. And you were saying that overall you thought his answers were largely helping your case. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt that 90% of his answers were helpful to the defense. 10% of his answers when he talked about conversations in late December and early January with Jim Mazo obviously were harmful to the case, but we also believed, and apparently most of the jurors did too, that these conversations were made up. How did, how did you maintain the tone and narrative throughout this cross-examination? I mean, it was about six or eight hours over two days, Right, right. How did, you, how did you sustain that? Well, from the very beginning, it was my goal to keep an even keel with Doug DeSensei. I saw no reason to yell, to scream, to argue with him. I didn't think I'd get anywhere with that. And it was really contrary to our, to our theory of the case. We had a theory of the case, which was that he largely um, he changed his, his uh, way of thinking about the case when he was offered a cooperation deal. And to, to present that, I felt the most effective way would be to do it in a very even-keeled way and to make him almost my friend, to make him uh, to have an, a conversation with him where he basically was giving the answers that I believed he would in response to my questions. Now, wealth was a big part of this case, just in terms of the amount of money that was spent on the stock, and that being kind of a large sum for maybe the average person who, who could be on a jury. You said you embraced this rather than run away from it. How did you work to contextualize this kind of stock trading for jurors? Well, the key word there, Megan, is contextualize. And you know, one of the main jobs of a defense lawyer, not just in this case, but throughout my career, one of my main jobs was to put context to the conduct that is charged. Because very often the government 
would isolate conduct that it believed would lead to a, a finding of guilt without providing the context, which I believed would make it less likely for a conviction. And, and here, too, context was important. We knew that there were large amounts of money. Couldn't run away from that. But we also knew, number one, that Jim Mazo did not make any money, that he did not trade, that he did not get any kickbacks from any of the trades because he didn't have any reason to. He hadn't done anything to create the trades. And so that was one part of the context. But more importantly, the government very effectively made a big deal about how much money Doug DeSense invested and how much he made. It ignored how much more money Dick Pickup had invested and made. So one of the things that we wanted to put context on was that there was a guy, Dick Pickup, who had made eight times as much as Doug DeSensei in trading an AMO stock and did it the old-fashioned way. He did research, and he believed it was an undervalued stock. So one thing was to bring in Dick Pickup's uh, trades and his profits. But to the, specifically to the Doug DeSensei point, he had made or invested several hundred thousand and made about four times that in profits. His total profit was about $1.3 million. But we wanted to give the jury the perspective that this was a relatively small part of his net worth. We couldn't, with a straight face, to say, uh, with a straight face say that a million dollars was not a lot of money. So I wouldn't do that. But what we did point out is that when he invested a couple of hundred thousand dollars in late December, early January in AMO stock, he had a, a net worth of at least six or eight million dollars. And the argument being, if you look at it in the context of his overall net worth and available cash to invest, it was actually not a large investment. And we took that argument one step further by saying that if this were the sure thing that the government was portraying it to be, why wouldn't he have invested more of his money on a sure thing? So we actually tried to take what initially was looked like a bad fact, a lot of money, and turn it against the government by saying, actually, it was a relatively small amount of money, and if it were a sure thing, he would have invested much more. And that was the purpose of, uh, or that was the way we, we presented the money in context. Now, one moment for the prosecution uh, in their cross-examination at Dick Pickup seemed to be, and they, and they ended with it too, when uh, Mr. Pickup said, I didn't tell Doug DeSensei anything. And they cited that again in their closing argument. But you, I remember, followed up on that really quick in your redirect by trying to, I, as you'd say here, contextualize that. How were you able to neutralize that? And do, you think, do you think you were able to neutralize that? Uh, absolutely. We neutralized it by going back to Doug DeSensei's own words. Dick Pickup did not actively recommend AMO to Doug DeSensei. It was Doug DeSensei who went to Dick Pickup for investment advice. And AMO was one of the stocks that Dick Pickup told Doug DeSensei he loved and he was heavily investing in. We knew that Doug DeSensei himself would rebut that argument by the government. So in the cross-examination of Doug DeSensei, we made it a point to get him to admit that he relied heavily on Dick Pickup's investment advice, and he did so. And we used that transcript to rebut the government's closing argument when they said Dick Pickup didn't recommend AMO stock. We said, well, wait, their own witness, Doug DeSensei, contradicts that. And we put the transcript up on the screen. 
how helpful were was Pickup's testimony that indicated he he didn't have a, a good view of Desensei anymore? I mean, he was upset that Desensei had 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 told his friends about this. You know, I don't think it was hugely helpful. I thought it was marginally helpful to us. I think it what it did was draw a contrast in character between Jim Mazel on the one hand, who everyone believed and agreed was a great guy, not just a good guy, but a great guy, and a man of enormous integrity, with Doug DeSensei, who had made a cooperation deal to save himself, and who, according to Dick Pickup, really had let him down by not only um, trading himself, but more importantly, recommending the stock to his friends and using Dick Pickup's name in his recommendations. I think that's what disappointed Dick Pickup the most, was Dick Pickup was a very private man. And what he was telling Doug DeSensei was friend to friend. And Doug DeSensei not only traded himself, which was totally legal, but he then went and told, recommended it to his friends and telling his friends, Dick Pickup loves this stock. Dick Pickup was a private man and didn't want others knowing what he was investing in. But where does this uh, case rank for you in terms of your career? And how was this case uh, one to go out on? <laughs> well, first of all, it, it was a great case to go out on because I'd spent 10 years of my life along with a great team of, of lawyers here at Skadden preparing for the moment of trial and actually the moment of two trials. And to get a 10-2 acquittal, not guilty vote, the second trial, in a case where the alleged tippee pointed to my client and said he's guilty, was, uh, was just a very gratifying result. In terms of how the case um, stacks up, it certainly wasn't my most complicated case because this case ended up being a one-on-one -on -one with, with a cooperating witness saying something and the defendant saying the opposite. But in terms of the length of the case, in terms of the stress level of representing an innocent man and not wanting, and not wanting him to be convicted of criminal insider trading, when we on our team firmly believed in his cause, that stress level was among the highest of any of my cases. Now, what about the... There was a single nine to three count on a broader perjury charge, and my interpretation of that would would show that it indicates one of those people thought that he probably he did tell Desensei something he just did not believe Desensei's story. Is that a? It's a fair interpretation. We never got granular on that in our preparation for what might have been a third trial because we didn't get that far down the line. We we. Uh, found a, a way to resolve everything. So, so we never got granular in trying to understand that one vote. Um, so you, you've said that this case is among your, your top five. Um, what, the earliest on the list of, of that was the Columbia Savings case, uh, the prosecution of Thomas Spiegel. Um, and it, you have an anecdote you sometimes share from that case regarding the importance of, of returning phone calls. What happened there? The case was in the early 1990s. It was at a time when the savings and loan crisis was the, the big deal with the Department of Justice. And our client, Tom Spiegel, was one of the three most wanted men in the country in terms of the SNL crisis. 
He and his father had founded Columbia Savings and Loan, built it to an incredibly successful institution, and Tom was the CEO and chairman. As a result of, the cha of a change in the rules on how portfolios would, were evaluated, requiring banks to mark their portfolio to market, Columbia and several other institutions had a, had, were overweighted in junk bonds. And when the market was down, their value was down. So it caused these companies, these banks, to be illiquid and actually insolvent. Uh, the government indicted Tom Spiegel on 60 charges, 60 felony charges of a whole, whole array of different conduct. Brad Bryan of Munger Tolls, who is an amazing trial lawyer uh, and very good friend, was my co-counsel. And um, it was a two-month trial here in Los Angeles. Um, and somewhat towards the middle of the trial, we were you know, heading to the key parts of the government's case, the bank fraud counts. And the government called as a witness a fellow named Howard Schneider, who had been the, the owner of a company called Greg Motors. And the allegation uh, simply stated was that that he gave to Tom Spiegel, then the CEO of Columbia, certain benefits by way of luxury automobiles, which violated the bank fraud statutes. We knew that not to be the case, but Howard Schneider was motivated by a deal with the government to, to testify against Tom Spiegel. Every um, Saturday and Sunday during trial, I would be in my office, um, and I would have collected uh, a stack of messages from the previous week when I was in trial and was not returning calls. And I remember when I was a young lawyer, Max Gillum, who was then the leading white-collar lawyer as a senior partner at Latham & Watkins, and I was privileged to have worked with him, he used to tell me the one thing he always did was return calls as soon as he could. So I was flipping through the messages, and those years there weren't text messages or anything, it was just on paper, and I noticed a, a name of a guy that I didn't recognize his name and a phone number and said, important. So something told me that I ought to return this call. And so I dialed the guy's number and he said, Counselor, I've been reading about your case and I see that Howard Schneider is a very important witness against Tom. I don't know your client, Tom Spiegel, at all, but I know Howard Schneider and he's a liar. I said, well, thank you very much, but what proof do you have of that? Otherwise, I have to get back to work. Uh, he said, I actually have a tape where he admits to being such a good liar that he could fool people by telling them a story straight to their face when it was the, an absolute lie. And I said, <laughs> we have to meet this guy. Uh, Howard Schneider was going to be cross-examined by my co-counsel, Brad Bryan, and I was working with Brad on the cross-examination. And so I decided to meet with him, met with him the next day at a hotel. And sure enough, he had a tape, and it said exactly what he had said. Now, Schneider wasn't talking about Tom Spiegel. He was just talking more generally about his ability to fool people. And so worked up some questions, reviewed the tape and the questions with Brad. Brad skillfully delivered the cross-examination by first asking, aren't you the type of person that could lie to people by looking them in the face and telling them a lie and get them to believe you to be telling the truth? And he said, no, that's not me. And then Brad said, well, did you ever say that to anyone? He said, I would never say that because that's not me. And then Brad asked the court for permission to play an audio tape of him saying those words. And I'll never forget what happened. Right after that cross-examination, the um, judge, Judge Hagasugi, turned to the government and said, are you 
prepared to dismiss the bank fraud charges as a result of what just happened in cross-examination. And not surprisingly, shortly thereafter, the bank fraud charges, which were the most significant in terms of potential jail time exposure to Tom, were dismissed. The case ended up with a total acquittal of all 60 counts. But those bank fraud charges could have been the most problematic were it not for the phone call that I returned. So describe that that one for you. At, at that point, when it was it was 1994, where were you in your career, and where did this one put you? I was practicing law with my best friend and former college classmate Bert Eichsler in a small litigation firm, and I had I had been lucky enough in the early part of my career to have been a prosecutor, gotten great trial experience, and then to have some some pretty big trials in the late 80s, including. Nancy Hoover in the J. David Dominelli Ponzi scheme case in San Diego and others. But the Tom Spiegel case was of totally different ilk. It was a national case. It was a very high priority for the government. And so when Brad and I won that case, I think that put us on the map in terms of highly skilled white-collar criminal defense lawyers. And it, it actually had an immediate effect. The day of the acquittal, I went back to my office, and I had a message from Merrill Lynch's general counsel indicating that Orange County had just gone bankrupt, and Merrill Lynch anticipated a whole slew of litigation arising therefrom, and they wanted me to represent the Merrill Lynch broker who had the most direct dealings with the Orange County treasurer in what would become a six-year case of civil, administrative, and criminal litigation. That phone message came to me when I got back to the office from the Spiegel case. You returned it that day? And I returned it that day. And so by that time, you had already, uh, you had already gone into partnership with uh, Bert. Right. So, do you remember about what year was that, and why did you do that? I joined Bert's firm. Bert's firm at that point was a few lawyers, relatively small, and we had you know, always discussed the possibility of, of being partners and working together, and I thought after Steve Wilson, my mentor had left the Hockman firm where I was to become a federal judge, I thought it was a great opportunity to basically go out on my own, even though Bert, Bert's firm was small at the time. And we grew the firm to about 15 or 20 lawyers, all litigation, and just had a blast. After about 12 years, it, it got to the point we had grown in, in size to about 50 or 60 employees. It got to the point where we looked at each other and said, you know, what happens if something happens to one of us? You took a job as a U.S. attorney or as a judge or just something happened. You know, what would happen to the firm and what would happen to all, all the folks that, that relied on us? So we uh, mutually agreed that we should connect with a big um, national firm and basically merge our practice. But we only had one condition, which was that the firm, and it ended up being Proskauer, take everyone, that, and secretaries, mailroom clerks, receptionists, um, everyone. And they did. And so we took our small firm and became basically the litigation department of Proskauer on the West Coast. And how many years did you do that? Was it a good six, six years? Yeah, I was there for six years. But I then decided that um, we had accomplished what we wanted to in terms of making sure all of our people had jobs with a big firm and, and steady work and uh, decided that Skadden offered a better platform, more of a national and international platform. So I joined Skadden in January of 2006. 
And you touched on it a little bit there, but what was the big enticement about SCAD? I mean, this was a, a whole other... This was a whole other level of national law firm, was it? Or right. Well, Proskauer was a really good firm, and they were very good to us. But I felt that Skadden was the preeminent law firm in the country. It had an amazing M&A and corporate practice, but a very good litigation practice as well. So I thought it would be a better platform for a national practice for me. And how did you joining Skadden coincide with taking on... Greg Reyes came to me about two years before I joined Skadden, and uh, that was during the criminal investigation of what then became the scandal of the day, the stock option backdating scandal, and he had been the CEO and chairman of a, a company called Brocade up in the Silicon Valley, and he hired me in late 2004. I represented him at Proskauer for about a year, and then I he had not yet been indicted when he came over to Skadden with me, and his trial then occurred a year or two later. So obviously that was a pretty big case to bring with you to Skadden. It was. It was. But to Skadden's credit, Skadden really was not hiring me for a case. That became very clear during the discussions with Skadden. They wanted me, um, and they wanted my practice, but it wasn't because of the Reyes case or any particular case. It was more about what I had done over the past several years and what they believed I could do. And Reyes was your, was your first big case at Skadden, right? Was yes. That, that's what you were doing yes, right, it was. right from the beginning? Yes. Um, how did you prepare for that and uh, take us through the trial there? Well, one of the great things about Skadden is the number of talented younger lawyers who are hardworking and eager to work on trials. So I was fortunate to build a team of a dozen or so young uh, lawyers because this was a very complicated area of stock option accounting. We needed experts. Coincidentally, we had a conflict with the cross-examination of one of the witnesses in the case in that he was a KPMG auditor and Skadden represented KPMG. So for that witness, I brought my good friend Brad Bryan in to assist, and he did a terrific job in that cross-examination. But the preparation was very much like preparation for other big cases. It was analyzing all of the documents, coming up with a theory of the case, and then executing on it. And the, the verdict in that was widely reported as shocking. I think the San Jose Mercury News even led with that, that it was a shocking verdict. What was that like for you? It w was a shock. It was a shock for all of us because we saw what was happening in court. We saw how well the cross-examinations of the government witnesses had gone. We thought our defense case was good. And we talked to people, reporters and others who were in the courtroom. We talked to a lot of the courtroom observers. And to a person, everyone was saying, boy, this is a winner. You guys are going to win. And after seven days of jury deliberation, the jury convicted Greg. So it was a shock to us. But we knew that we had a very strong issue on appeal, and that was the prosecutorial misconduct which we had discovered during the trial, which we had argued for a dismissal before Judge Breyer unsuccessfully during trial, we knew that would be, or we believed that would be a winning issue on appeal. And sure enough, after two years of appellate work with Seth Waxman from Wilmer Cutler, uh, Wilmer Hell, I guess, we were successful on appeal. And how did you, uh, how did you follow that appeal? And I mean, what was it like when the convictions were? Uh, it was an amazing day. I was actually 
at lunch at the Brooklyn Diner in New York during a break of interviewing experts for my next big options backdating case, the Rui case, when I got a call from Greg Reyes saying we won, 3 nothing Court of Appeals with a lengthy opinion. Uh, it was an amazing feeling knowing that he at that point was a free man. Um, and, and you didn't do the second trial, right? No, I didn't. Second trial conflicted with the Ruley trial, so I wasn't able to do it. And the Ruley trial was obviously your next big one, and that seems to have become your career-defining case. Do you, do you agree? I do. I, the Ruley case was an incredibly complicated options backdating case with a lot of moving parts. There were several, or there was one co-defendant whose case was severed, uh, the co-founder of Broadcom. And so um, we had another law firm kind of watching us, Williams and Connolly, came very friendly with several of their partners, including Brendan Sullivan, who were terrific, terrific lawyers and, and great friends. And, but, but we were the first to go to trial. And so that in and of itself was, was a daunting task. There were millions of pages of documents to analyze. And we had to figure out a way to convince a regular jury that the mere fact that the senior executives made hundreds of millions of dollars in stock options that they had received from the company didn't mean that there was a fraud or that it was illegal. And to do that, we had to really understand stock option accounting. And we also had to understand what other people in the company felt at the time. And that's how we developed the theme of now versus then. Our theme basically was that now some people were saying it was criminal because the government was interviewing them, the FBI showed up at the door, the FBI and the government had a belief that it was criminal, so they, they kind of started believing it was criminal. But at the time, back then, none of them believed it was criminal. All of them believed they were acting in good faith, including Bill Rooley. And that became the central theme of the case, now versus then. And then you pursued the uh, prosecutorial misconduct allegations you pursued became the key to dismantling that. Can you walk us through how, how that came about and, and what the process was for that? Well, there were a number of things that had happened pre-trial during the investigation, which we didn't believe were kosher. We made a motion at the beginning of the trial to dismiss that the judge did not even give us an evidentiary hearing on. So we started the trial, and uh, we got to the defense case. Government rested. Defense were going to call its first witnesses. And on our witness list, which we gave to the government, were two ex-executives of Broadcom, the general counsel, David Dull, and the co-founder, Henry Samwelly. We knew from conversations with their lawyers that they were going to assert their constitutional privilege because neither one had been prosecuted to the full extent of the charges um, yet, and so they both believed they had jeopardy and could validly assert the Fifth Amendment. We believed the only way around that was to ask the judge for defense witness immunity, a tactic that is rarely, if ever, granted. But this judge, to his credit, Judge Carney, read our papers, had seen how the trial occurred to date, and realized that the two most important people that he could hear from were David Dull, who was the general counsel and deeply involved in the stock option practices, and Henry Samueli, who was on the stock option granting committee. And so he granted defense witness immunity 
to unlock the key to their testimony. So that was the first piece that led to what became the dismissal based on Prost's misconduct. The night before David Dull was to hit the stand, I was having dinner in the bar at the hotel where the team was staying, and Jim Asperger, who had been a friend for many years and was a, a, one of the leading white-collar lawyers in town, came up to me and said, you won't believe this story that just happened to me. And then he related how he and his partner, Seth Aronson, a fine civil litigator in his own right, had had a meeting with the prosecutor to talk about David Dull. Because the prosecutor reached out to them after he saw David Dull's name on the defense uh, witness list. And the prosecutor basically said to them, well, what's he going to testify to? And, and Jim and Seth generally outlined the areas that I wanted to inquire into. And then the prosecutor said something to the effect that, well, you know, he's got some exposure. His immunity is, just, is limited. He's got some exposure for perjury if he doesn't tell the truth. And furthermore, if he basically testifies that what happened here was wrong, we're going to give him a soft cross. But if he claims that what he was doing he thought was proper and he believes that Bill Rooley thought it was proper, then it won't be a soft cross. And we believe that was a very heavy-handed way of approaching a witness. We believe that if defense lawyers ever did that with a potential government witness, the government would raise holy hell. And we wanted to bring that misconduct to the judge's attention. And so we strategized about how to do it, and I persuaded Jim that the, the best way to do it was to tell the judge in a letter that night exactly what happened, and hopefully we'd get an evidentiary hearing. And Jim, to his credit, agreed, even though it was to some risk to his client that he exposed what the government had, had said to him in their conversation. Jim, to his credit, agreed with us and our approach, wrote the letter, and the judge, to his credit, immediately held a hearing where uh, David Dull testified and where the prosecutor testified. So I had the pleasure of not only directly examining a defense witness, but cross-examining a prosecutor. And as a result of that, the judge basically said that what happened was improper, but that the case will go forward. And he gave me wide latitude to examine both David Dull and Henry Samueli. And as, as a result of their testimony, proving Bill Rooley's innocence, and their testimony establishing the government misconduct, the judge on December 15th, 2009, which coincidentally is Bill of Rights Day in the country, dismissed the indictment against our client. He dismissed the case against Henry Samueli, who had even pleaded guilty to something. He overturned that conviction. He dismissed the case against Henry Nicholas, who wasn't even in court. He dismissed two other guilty pleas of people who weren't in court. And he dismissed or encouraged the government to dismiss the SEC case, which they did a month or so later against four defendants. So that was an incredibly gratifying result. It was totally warranted based on the facts and the law. But, but I applaud Judge Carney for having the courage to take the first step of granting defense witness immunity. And where did you go from, from there? That was, a, that was a huge win, and you pretty much were immediately into the AMO. Okay yes. Because the, uh, they were doing the, not the, just the investigation. Uh, you were representing the company. So yes. 
Yes, but uh, I got hired by Jim Mazo in the middle of 2009, actually before the Ruley case. But the investigation started heating up in 2010, 11, 12. So that took a lot of my time. But actually, the lion's share of my time, very much like the Merrill Lynch case following the Spiegel acquittal, I got a call from a lawyer in Atlanta who was a very dear friend, Mitch Mitchelson of Austin, Alberta, a terrific lawyer, who was representing a target of a big criminal investigation involving government contracting fraud. And the company might be looking for a new lawyer to represent the chairman and the company. That turned into the agility case where we represented uh, Agility Public Warehousing, which was the contractor to supply the food to the troops in, in the Iraq war. About an eight-year contract, about a $10 billion contract that the government said was fraudulent. And so for the next eight years, I spent substantial time going back and forth to the Middle East, all around the country, and litigating again with a very big team here at Skadden, litigating uh, this large government contracting fraud case, which ended up being settled for a one-count misdemeanor and the payment of $551, which we actually believed was a, a total victory considering that our client was facing $10 billion of potential damages. There were court proceedings in Atlanta for that, correct? There were. Uh, we had, our team had uncovered in their examination of 27 million pages of government documents what we believe to be government misconduct in the investigation of the case, tampering with witnesses and doing other things which were improper. The judge in that case was a magistrate judge. We made the motion, and he agreed that there was enough evidence to have an evidentiary hearing. So our team prepared for what turned out to be a two-week evidentiary hearing in Atlanta, and we prepared very much like the trial, trial preparation. We got to cross-examine government agents, government prosecutors, and after the hearing, the magistrate judge announced that he was very troubled by the conduct in the case, specifically that he didn't find the testimony of the lead FBI agent to be credible, and that he didn't tell us what he was going to do, but he said that's going to all be considered in his opinion on whether or not to dismiss the case. Well, that opinion ended up never being drafted or finalized because the case settled before it was released. Are there other cases that stand out that you'd want to mention? The only other cases that I think I'd want to mention are a couple of the cases that I had as prosecutor, because I think they kind of set the table for me in, in terms of giving me the confidence and the trial skills to be defense lawyer. I was fortunate enough to prosecute in two separate trials, a deputy sheriff for civil rights violations, and then the deputy sheriff again, and a DEA agent for yet other civil rights violations, which included uh, forcing witnesses to deal heroin and cocaine for them, and assorted uh, threats to witnesses in other cases, and some really terrible misbehavior. The case was investigated by the LA Sheriff's Department, and was a pretty high-profile case in the early 1980s. Those were two trials that I, that I thought were particularly noteworthy when I was a prosecutor. Um, you went to NYU Law after George Washington. You said you'd always wanted to be an attorney. Where did that come from? I always wanted to be a lawyer because I like to talk, I like to argue, I like to debate, and I didn't like blood. So I couldn't be a doctor, and growing up in a typical Jewish home on Long Island, there were really two options for a career, either a lawyer or a doctor. So a doctor was eliminated, and I thought law would be good. 
plus my grandmother on my mother's side, loved Perry Mason. And so she and I would watch the episodes of Perry Mason, and obviously that was a terrific defense lawyer. Um, I didn't know that's what I was going to end up being, but that kind of lit the flame as well. What, what did your parents do? My father was an insurance man, and my mother was an um, accounts payable clerk at a company. I mean, what, what advice would you have for law students in general and those interested in white-collar defense work? When I was in law school, that's the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And so I had to go to a law firm and really see what corporate law was like to convince me that I wanted to be a litigator. Mm-hmm. So the first piece of advice is don't be so sure you know what you want to do when you're in law school. Certainly not, it didn't work that way for me. And I know others who have um, had the same experience. So keep an open mind. When you're 2L and if you're fortunate enough to work at a law firm, try to sample several areas before you end up committing uh, to that. And the second piece of advice is to understand that when you become a young lawyer, you have multiple opportunities to add value to the cases you're on. You enter with no experience, obviously. That's the nature of being a new lawyer. But what you enter with is, is great intelligence and great energy. And you can add value to the, to the teams and to the cases that you work on. And it doesn't have to be the kind of value that maybe you'll end up adding after some having some experience. In other words, young lawyers are as well-equipped as older lawyers to read documents, read emails, summarize them, find key emails in the case uh, that the senior lawyers might not find, do legal research find legal arguments that the senior lawyers might not find. So there are ways to bring value. And my, my, I guess my best advice to a young lawyer is find those ways. Find the way in whatever case you're working on to bring value to the enterprise. So when you're in trial and managing a big team like you are, how do you, how do you balance the big picture with the day-to-day issues that arise? Well, if I'm on a big trial, there's very little balance. We have a big picture of what our big themes are, where we want to get to by the end of the case. But you get immersed on a day-to-day basis in the particular battle that day. And so it's, it's impossible to balance the big picture and the little stuff. Everything is consumed in the trial. Um, the, but the way I manage the stress of a trial is to recognize that this is a stressful situation. It's not going to get any better. You just have to deal with it. And hopefully, by the end of the trial, it'll be a good result. You get a chance to relax. So what is your trial schedule like? When you're in a typical uh, trial that starts at 9 a.m., goes to 4.30, what is your schedule like? So the trial schedule on the last several of my cases, which were larger cases and multi-month cases, the trial schedule starts in the pretrial phase, which begins as much as a year or two before the trial. And that's kind of a regular schedule. I generally do not work weekends when I'm preparing uh, for trial until about a month before trial. And then I go into total trial mode, which means seven days a week. It means seven in the morning till at least seven at night. And as it gets closer to the trial, it gets stretched to nine o'clock at night, but I can't much function past 9 p.m. And that's the schedule of most of the people on my team as well. Some of the younger lawyers like to sleep in a little bit, but, but they work much longer and later than I. And so um, the, the trial schedule in trial is the same. Starts at very early in the morning, usually around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning when I wake up. 
preparing for that day, polishing my notes for that day's events, trials from 9 to 4, 9 to 5, and then we go back to the hotel and I work till 9. Go to sleep at 9 and wake up the next day at 4 o'clock. If the trial starts at 9, what time would you typically be at the courthouse? We always got to the courthouse early. We get to the courthouse by 8 o'clock for a 9 o'clock start. When and why did you decide to retire? Um, I decided to retire because I thought it was a good time to retire. I wanted to finish the Mazo case. I wanted to finish the Agility case. Both were long-standing commitments to clients that I thought very highly of. The Mazo case stretched out longer than any of us thought. The first trial was supposed to be in 2015, I think. We were down, ready to go to court. But the day before trial, the government filed an interlocutory appeal, which went to the Ninth Circuit and delayed that trial for two years. But the two Mazo trials, Mazo 1, which was in the spring of 2017, and Mazo 2, which was January and February of 2018, were incredibly difficult trials. I was representing a person that I deeply believed in, but I saw a government case which had superficial appeal to it. Um, And so I felt tremendous pressure to get the right result, which in my mind was an acquittal in the criminal case. And that pressure was more pressure than I think I've ever felt in trials. Perhaps it was a function of my age. I had never tried a case at age 67 before, obviously. And uh, I think part of it was the client and the circumstances. A defendant, you know, flipping and then coming up with a new story uh, that my client was guilty and, and defending against that. All of that led to eight days of jury deliberations, four in each trial, which were incredibly stressful. And I said to myself, if I get through this, this is it. And we were able to get through it. We ended up getting a great result. And I said, I can't do this anymore. Because yeah. what can you do during, during, during deliberations? I think we have this conversation during jury deliberations. You can't, you can't do anything. All you do is sit by the computer. The judge and the staff were kind enough to allow us to be at our hotel rather than in the uh, attorney lounge. But to sit by the computer, looking at your emails, waiting for an email from the clerk saying, the jury's gone for the day, or we have a verdict, or we have a note. And that's incredibly stressful. I sat for the entire jury deliberations with my client in, uh, in my hotel room watching the computer. And notes. I mean, the notes are obviously a big deal, and you're reading the tea leaves on there, and those can add to the stress more when you're trying to interpret what the jury's thinking about. Absolutely. And that concludes our podcast with Richard Marmoral. This is Megan Cuniff from the Daily Journal. Thank you for listening. Thank you.